Welcome to the Lotus Pod, exploring the human experience. Welcome everyone. Today I'm honored to have here with me Helena Norberg-Hodge, which is a founder director of Local Future. And she's an author and director as well. And I would love to interview you today and just to talk to you a little bit about your work. You know, you're a founder of the Local Future, which is a nonprofit organization for strengthening culture and biological diversity and economics worldwide. Hi, Helena. How Hi. are you today? Hi. Good. Good. Thank you for thank you for being here or I actually being here at your beautiful home. Glad to be here. Yeah. And so I am very inspired by your work and to be honest, when I met you, I haven't actually known about all of the wonderful things you have done. We have worked a little bit together in the yoga practice, but only after I found out about all the amazing, actually the amazing story of your life and your achievement and your work in, uh, global, in local communities. And so I'd be very interested to hear, to hear more about that. And just to ask you a little bit, maybe of, first of all, what it is that you do today? And then I will kind of talk a little bit about your life before in the Himalaya, in Ladakh specifically, and maybe about your books and how does it now show up and manifest in your work today? Yeah. Well, what I'm doing today, particularly in COVID, there's a lot of podcasts and <laughs> and webinars and web-based conferences and I'm also continuing with work here in Byron Bay at the local level. I help to start the farmers markets here and um, through my work it became very obvious that strengthening local food economies is absolutely of central importance and so I'm continuing with that work here but I think more importantly local futures it's very unusual in that we try to disseminate at a global level the importance of strengthening local community and the local economy everywhere in the world. And so we have various projects, including World Localization Day, where we linked up with people in 30 countries and had thousands of events going on. And we'll be doing that again this year in June. And it's a, it's a very unusual activity because we really believe in international collaboration, international exchange, particularly between the more industrialized countries and the more modern or Western ones. Well, so it's a huge sort of misinformation between those two parts of the world and it's feeding right into supporting a corporate global consumer culture that we have studied and analyzed and um, we think that it can sound very threatening to people to even think about this big global corporate economy but we actually believe that if people would be willing to just take a deep breath step back and look at it they would find that it's very helpful to reducing self-blame, to understanding epidemics of depression, anxiety, addiction. It's very helpful to understand also a decline in health, um, obesity and 
heart problems, cancer. So it is really important that we look at that system in order to understand what kind of system we want to embrace, where we want to put our energy. And then it turns out that systemically, it's really important about that we should connect at the local level with real life community, with real life nature, not an idea of nature, but living nature. So that's, that's sort of part of what we do. It's very, very big picture. It sounds fascinating. <laughs> and what drawn me more than anything is that when you're speaking, I find that everything connects with everything. You know, you're talking about economy, you're talking about um, communities, and in a way, self-healing as well. As you actually, the more that we are connected or sorry, disconnected from each other, and we are disconnected from ourselves, which leads to a lot of mental problems. And in a way, we keep looking for solutions outside of ourselves, and with again individually as not a part of a community. Yeah. But how? Okay, where do we begin? Because it's so this it's so vast. So how do we get, because I think no, no one actually thinks about that in like the big cities, no, in no, the world, in, no. we're so no, used to. Yeah, and the funny thing about what we do is that many people who hear it afterwards will say, well, it's just obvious, it's really obvious, because it's very common sense and in a way obvious, and yet people are not looking in this direction generally, and that's because we are constantly being influenced essentially by a corporate consumer culture system that actually is not so much by lying, but by keeping the bigger picture from us, keep us running into a very fragmented view where we see ourselves as completely separate. And like I say, it's also a lot about self-blame um, but also this corporate system has actually shaped school books, science, academia, the media, virtually every avenue of knowledge is being influenced by big money. And it's not, you know, sort of a few men sitting in a dark room handing out money. It's like a machine. We have algorithms now. And the algorithms... I hope people saw the film, The Social Dilemma, mm. because there there were people from Silicon Valley mm. sitting there talking about if we continue with the social media the way it is now, we're going to be destroying ourselves. I mean, they were saying this is life-destroying. Mm. And what we need to understand is that what's happening in the social media is happening in a slightly different way at the level of mainstream media as well. So where do we get our knowledge? Where do we get our information about who we are? Who are we really by nature? Well, I've seen that very, very important idea of who are we really distorted in the 45 years that I've been working. So when I started, there were still strong voices. They were getting weakened that maintained that human beings prefer collaboration, want to be loved, want to love. If they're pushed into a corner, they'll defend themselves. They'll become aggressive and violent. Mm. But we are not born aggressive and violent. 
Now this is incredibly important, but we don't see that in the last 30 years in particular, that idea has been buried. So there's more and more and more propaganda about that this is the human race, we're, mm. <clears throat> we're so greedy, we're selfish, and we are destroying the planet. Mm. Now, actually, what's destroying the planet is a system that we've gone along with, but we didn't create it. And even today, uh, I would say particularly today, we have very little to do with this system continuing to push very, very destructive consumerism linked to more and more speed, more and more competition, more and more fear at every level. It's not just fear of COVID, it's fear of not having a decent job, mm. it's fear of aging, mm. it's fear of life. Surviving. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's really... Um, so we need to... Now again, talking about that system, you know, can, people can think, oh, it's too depressing. But actually, what I'm saying again, I just want to repeat, is that if we understand it better, then we would also be very heartened when we recognize that at the local level, at the small scale level, at the level beyond mainstream institutions, in other words, even beyond local government, beyond the local college, beyond the main, you know, the schools, people are taking up community initiatives that are so positive and that are so healing and it's all about working with nature mm. it's about working with our bodies with our deeper needs whether it's yoga and meditation or even beginning to recognize that we actually have to train our brain away from this over specialized left brain intellectual path which actually gets us into trouble we need mm. a balance so at every level when you step back and look at this as i do then you'll see this pattern where you feel very encouraged because you see that all around the world particularly in the industrialized modernized cities and parts of the world people are turning towards nature towards the feminine, towards a more collaborative, towards a more collaborative way of living, towards, as I said, more natural in every way, whether it's ecological architecture, ecological agriculture, ecological, um, even eco-theology, eco-linguistics, eco-architecture. I mean, mm. every discipline, there are people struggling to go against the mainstream towards a more natural, and actually also a more collaborative and holistic way forward. So there are certain characteristics of the dominant system that if we understand them better and we see the influence on us and on our lives and we wake up to looking for the systemic alternatives, then we'll feel far, far more positive about ourselves, about the potential for positive change and about the reality of a lot of positive change already happening. I'm, I'm interested also in your point of so many things I'm interested actually, but one, I would love you to elaborate on your take on the self-blame that you mentioned. Yeah. It seems very relevant because I, yeah. I see, you know, obviously there is so much diversity in people. There's people who it appear to have this numbness about them where you talk to them about 
coming back to nature, working with nature. They just don't understand what it actually means. It's just like yeah. a concept to them. Whereas at the other side of it, there's people who are, you know, uh, carrying on so much self-blame, like you said, and like it's uh, trying to do almost the opposite of, you know, there's always that extreme between like not caring at all and almost caring. Well, <laughs> well see, I would, I would say that the self-blame also encourages numbness because mm. when you've been told that if you're going to feel you're going to have to blame yourself so so a very clear example very one of many many is that when climate change became an issue and we have to remember these come up in the mainstream media suddenly the world is told we have this major problem with climate change and then we have someone like Al Gore making this important film and he's standing up on the stage pointing out that we, we're going to face extinction if we don't do something about climate change. As he describes the cause of climate change and the cure for climate change, he says nothing about what big business is doing. He says nothing about the fact that almost exactly at the same time that we get to hear about climate change, we get to hear um, that, that um, well, actually, we don't get to hear. Almost exactly the same time, what's happening is that big industries are moving away from the industrialized countries to the poor countries. Mm -hmm. Because that's, now, they have these trade treaties where they can go wherever they like. They're forcing governments to let them have total freedom through so-called free trade. So they go off and pick the poorest countries to have the cheapest labor. So at the same time that we hear about climate change, we get to hear that poor countries shouldn't have to reduce emissions because these poor countries had nothing to do with creating climate change. But the message is, you Westerners who live this opulent lifestyle and you drive a car, you created climate change. Al Gore doesn't tell us that that lifestyle was created with the help of big business started after the Second World War, big business literally created consumerism. There were economists saying, but wait a minute, what are we going to do? We can't keep growing the economy by people buying more and more. They won't buy this more and more. And then other corporations, oh yes, we can. And they even worked with Freud's nephew to figure out how to target people, mm -hmm. to motivate them to consume. And one of the things they did was, among other things, to tell women that smoking was a sign that they were equal to men. Those are just mm. some of the things that makes it sound rather evil um, that these corporations are doing that. And I do want to just pause to say there that what the corporations have been doing is actually evil, but each individual inside the corporation, you will find if you go closer to them and talk to them, they don't see the big picture, so they can be quite comfortable with what they're doing. So they're not evil as such. They're part of a system that's very destructive, but they don't even get to see clearly the impact of what they do. Mm. So they can go to bed you know, and sleep easily at night. But to come back to the self-blame, this message then was climate change is your fault. And then now for more than 30 years, We've been hearing, oh, these greedy people, and especially these greedy Westerners, they refuse to change, and climate change, and the threat of climate change is getting worse and worse and worse. Now, 
this is, it's, you could say it's not a lie and that most people are still driving their cars and so on, but the whole time the major cause of climate change wasn't even being exposed. And the people in the West who had factories leave their towns lost their jobs. And they then became more insecure in their livelihood and they wanted leaders who would grow the economy for them. So they're voting for people like the Trumps and the so on and so we're gonna grow the economy and make your country great again. Forget about these environmental issues and climate change. So in the meanwhile, a lot of environmentalists and a lot of people who cared about nature were getting more and more depressed and blaming themselves more and more. Mm -hmm. So this across the board is what's happened because the Westerners are also made to believe that poor people in the third world are poor because of them. Mm -hmm. And what they're not looking at, by not looking at the big picture, is how without telling them their governments, whether left or right, whether Sweden, whether Israel, whether America, France, are supporting these corporations to create a huge environmental catastrophe, mm. not just climate, but also to create more and more poverty. So people, the majority of people in the world are getting significantly poorer year by year. Another thing about self-blame is that people in the West are regularly told, you have everything. Why are you depressed? Why are people taking drugs? And we don't realize that we have, in this path of consumerism, lost community, lost essentially real intergenerational family connections, lost our contact with nature, and maybe worst of all, we have lost a vital ingredient in life, which is time. We've been mm. robbed of time, and it takes time to love, it takes time to care for ourselves, for others. It takes time to live in a way that is happy and healthy. So robbing us of time, which is entirely a consequence of, this, of a techno-economic system, has impoverished us. So it's tragic to me that people you know, you don't look at this and just blame themselves instead. You know, that's mm. why I'm very passionate about getting this message mm. out. There's a few things that, how do we start? So just, just talking about money for a moment and economic yeah. and, you know, just the, the general or the average Joe, the people who basically, if you live in a big city, you will definitely go to buy something in a big chain store because it's cheaper and they don't really can afford to even ask themselves the questions of oh, where is it actually coming from, what is the labor, whose the labor is being used, um, how, can we, how can we start even just thinking about our, the steps that we actually as a consumer are, what are we choosing? Yeah, well there I'm so keen to get the very strong message out which is don't start on your own. Mm. And so there's a step for the individual to take, but the first step is to connect with some like-minded other people. So it can be, you know, just two or three other people, even one other person, but as soon as you change the I to a we, you have lightened the load a bit, you've made the journey more enjoyable because this 
path is also a path of reconnection. So um, what we are seeing and what we're, what we're encouraging and what we're seeing people benefiting is when they start taking steps to build a more local economic fabric that's based on more human scale connection. So they might start a food co-op, for instance, where because there are few of them, because if you start with one or two people, then you'd want to build up a bigger group. Mm -hmm. But once you start a food co-op, you can actually start as a group to have the energy and the time to spend the, that time to see mm. where the food's coming from. As a group, you can also get the food more cheaply. So you can start looking at healthier mm. food. I mean, one, one issue there that's really problematic is that in so many countries, those initiatives that have started and been successful then want to grow and become bigger and bigger. But then they actually lose their soul and they actually lose their ability to be a genuine alternative. Mm. So part of this message that I'm wanting to get out is that many small are much, much better than one big. Whether it's a, even whether it's a, a group of people or or shops or farms, or even I actually worked with a an economist writer years ago who talked about nation states. He talked about the need to break down the nation states to become smaller, mm. and I completely agree with that. Having grown up in Sweden and also lived in America. Um, and seeing the difference, you know, in a democracy where you have 7 million people compared to one where you have 200 million. And so that's another interesting thing. <laughs> it, no, it is very interesting. It seems like the more it, everything we, we talk about, the answer is more coming back to we instead of yeah, I. Yeah. And I would love to hear a little bit about how did you actually, you know, came to be the person you are today? What, because you are, you grew up in Sweden, right? Yeah. And you know, you're here today in Australia, in Byron Bay, and I know that you spent a lot of years in the Himalaya, in Ladakh, yeah. that I think kind of uh, formed or designed the person that you are today. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would you share a bit about yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. What happened is that growing up in Sweden, but also having lived in America mm. and in France and in Germany, I already started becoming aware of cultural differences, and I spoke a lot of languages. And I became really aware, that, like I say, even the scale of the democracy in uh, Sweden compared to America. And I, I became aware that the economy in America had become much more influenced by corporations mm. and that the average child growing up was moving seven times. And so they didn't have a sense of real place and belonging and community mm. in the way we did in Europe. Later on, <clears throat> when I was 30 years old, I was invited to go out to help to make a film in this place called Ladakh, which is West Tibet, and a place that many people still haven't heard of, which mm. is very interesting, because people love Tibet, generally. Mm. And this is actually, in a way, more Tibetan than Tibet. This is high up on the plateau, the Dalai Lama's spiritual head, mm. but politically, it was separate from central Tibet and it belonged to India since mm. the 1800s. And in the modern era, from the 1840s till the mid-70s, 1970s, it was sealed off from the outside world. 
and um, for political reasons in the modern era. And then suddenly the Indian government had thrown it open. So I arrived in one of the few cultures in the world that had not been colonized or developed or influenced by global media. So it's probably the only place in the world where no one had heard of the Beatles, mm. you know, in the mid 70s. And that turned out to be incredibly significant. I became fascinated because I'd never seen people who were so happy and healthy. Mm. And it's just a lot of women, especially, still say, I think, when they go to Ladakh, they feel like they've come home because it's a culture that is allowing for more of the nurturing, the mothering, the, f the feminine aspect of life. Mm. Um, and and also so peaceful, you feel really safe. And I, mm. I realized I had never in my life felt that safe mm. as I did in Ladakh. Anyway, I learned to speak the language fluently. I ended up staying after the film was finished. I helped to make a dictionary. I was working at first to do a PhD on the language. But as I uh, went through the whole region, about 100 villages in an area about the size of Austria, I found everywhere I went just, just people who said they had never known hunger, people who were so deeply contented with who they were and where they lived and what they had. And the, the main thing about it was that these people were so genuinely individual mm. that they were fascinating. Life was so rich because the people were so incredibly alive. They were they had a sense of humor, but you know, people were individual too, some more than others. <clears throat> and I ended up yeah, just totally captivated by them. And then I saw the changes as the modern economy came in. And I saw that the same people who had been just radiantly happy suddenly, I mean like literally in a few years, became different people. Mm -hmm. It was particularly dramatic with children who I realized already by the age of four or five were influenced by media, later on schooling as well, all of it saying that their life was backward and stupid and they were poor and they started feeling ashamed of who they were. Oh, so it was wow. this diametrically opposite thing of the self-rejection mm. versus complete self-acceptance. Now, when you have complete self-acceptance, the self is not an issue. Very often, when we see people who look confident in the West, it's often people who are trying to seem very important mm. and very... Because they feel not worthy, then they try to assert themselves. Yeah. So when you see genuinely self-confident people, they're interested in other people. They're not interested in proving themselves. Mm. And um, so I saw this huge psychological change. I became very aware of the various factors that created that change. And since that time, I've just been passionate about trying to teach those deeper, broader lessons about what really makes us happier, who we really are, and the fact that we can right now make changes. But we have to, in order to feel convinced of what I'm saying, I think we have to understand the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. 
It's, a, it's a, so much contradiction I see today. Yes. <laughs> There's, it's just fascinating. Um, first of all, the, the concept of happiness in, within yeah. ourselves. Yeah. And the question of where did we go wrong or where did we lose ourselves really? And it comes from, from even that since you are a small child and even looking at, for example, children or older people. Okay. And I always, I'm always very drawn to children and to older people. I don't know why. Now yeah. it starts to make sense to me why yeah. more. And I see that again in the Western society, most of us, we have kind of neglected our elders we're not, we, we put them in homes, we, we cannot kind of um, let them contribute to our life and to our, and the same with little children, like, like, no, you wait, you will learn, instead of actually trying to learn from them to teach us how to come back to, to play and to so many things that we have forgotten as adults. Yeah. So I'm interested to to hear again about also your take on that and communities about children and yeah. older uh, generation. Yeah. And yeah. Now I was the, one of the most beautiful and I suppose the most central message really from this ancient indigenous culture that was still really healthy was that the oldest and the youngest were deeply connected mm -hmm. and literally I mean I used to talk about this a lot that they even look the same, you know, mm. hairless, toothless, <laughs> barely able to walk. I mean, oh. someone would see them hand in hand, walking really slowly, you know, oh. like an 80-year-old uncle and a one-year-old child, and just so adorable. Mm. And of course, they fulfilled an important function, spending time with young children like that. They also, uh, you know, they would literally be out in the field during harvest, and just lending a hand often by sort of supervising, they, you know, they help with cooking, they've had a meaningful function, but I would say the most meaningful being that connection to the youngest and the mm -hmm. presence. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I just want to remind you also, you said we have, you know, sort of not allowed them to be part of our lives, but I saw very clearly in Ladakh how the economic forces, mm. including the training in school, which is part of the economic package, mm. trained people and made it virtually impossible to continue living that way. Mm. So that connected intergenerational fabric goes hand in hand with more localized economies. And that's why localization is re-indigenization. And I think I, I need to say that the re-indigenization of rebuilding the local economy, which is very much about connecting the generations, but also connecting us to nature, mm. a lot of that can start in cities. Mm. So there are a lot of groups in cities that start building cohesion. So that, for instance, I know of many examples, like a woman who started on the street in Los Angeles, what she called an eco-village. So she got people involved, they started supporting each other, they started having gardens together, they started having childcare together. Uh, another big example is a group in Korea, in Seoul, where it started with a group of families protecting a bit of land, then they started an alternative school, and by the time I visited them, there were 20,000 people wow. who were in this, yeah, in this, project of living differently from the mainstream, more intergenerational, more collaborative, 
and face-to-face, -face, local, mm. you know, small businesses. So um, it can happen, but then what we also need to be aware of is that our governments right now, because of the corporate, and remember the corporate system is also the banks and financial institutions, and they are pushing with the help of algorithms in a direction that means bigger and bigger cities, the end will be to push the whole human population into giant sprawling cities mm. and supposedly use renewable energy, which is so non-renewable because it uses minerals that are not going to be able to be found again. Mm. And they are, yeah, so we have to be really, really aware of what's going on. But in the meanwhile, the counter trend the opposite direction is being created from the bottom up. So my big plea is that people need to be aware of these systemic paths and for their own well-being right now, whether they're in the city or in a smaller town, try to become part of the localization path and also raise awareness so that mm. we can build up a political power not by electing different people yeah. because it has to start by talking to each other mm. environmentalists talking to social activists people concerned about climate people concerned about poverty people concerned about depression all of these groups who are doing a lot of wonderful work mm. but because it's so specialized it often actually supports the dominant corporate system Mm. So you're not looking at the overall effect. So we see it's uh, also coming back to your point about women, about the yeah. feminine power. Yeah. It seems like it's almost um, just to describe how we're all in a way just acknowledging the part that we all have our masculine and our feminine energy within us. It seems like a, again I'm generalizing. Again I'm saying we. <laughs> I will try not yeah. to say we, but as a society. Yeah. We've drawn so much to the masculine for us, even forcing women to become or to try to be as men or to compete as men. If coming back to your point, even about cigarettes in yeah. the 30s to smoke, yeah. to be on the same, uh, yeah. um, as worthy to men. Yeah. But it almost stands up for more than that, the, just yeah. the feminine. And yeah. it's, uh, have to do so much with nature yeah. and with not... With, expanding and being one with nature and how do we live like that in our in our personal life how do we make our choices matter yeah so so yes beginning small you're saying it's just to uh, start. beginning small but also like you said being aware of how a lot of women who want to see a more feminine and well want to see women have more power have partly again because of influence mm. ended up following this line that we are just like men. So yeah, indeed, trying to be like men yeah. again. So it's been, whether it's a minority group or women, the idea has been confusing equal power and equal rights mm. with being the same. And this is a terrible confusion because Definitely. what happens, especially with minority groups, is this sort of type of, of uh, inverted racism because... Basically, you're proving, oh no, we're exactly the same. That's the only way that we'll be accepted. Mm. So there's no acceptance of diversity. Mm -hmm. And with male and female, it's a very frightening trend right now with the whole fluidity around gender 
It's a very tricky issue, but I would urge people to think more about it. It's very interesting, that point, yeah. actually, about yeah. the fluidity of... Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm 32 now, so yeah. there's a much younger generation than me that they are very fluid with their, with their uh, gender and how do they want to be defined as. And it's, again, in a way, I feel like it's like what you're saying, going back to the extreme. Yeah. Seems like we work only as in extreme, in duality in this life. So we, we go through masculinity, uh, women trying to be masculine, proving that we are the same, which we are not. Now we're ha- kind of losing or having that, I, just trying so much to, to grasp an identity in yeah. a way yeah. that is false yeah. because we're neither yeah. and we're everything in a way. Yeah. So yeah. that's very... And, yeah, and you see, from my point of view, really important point is that when you grow up as a child and you shape your identity based on real living role models mm. instead of a distant screen yeah you immediately as a child are seeing that people are complex mm. that nobody's perfect mm. And you are actually relating to life, to diversity. You also realize that not only are people different, but the same person changes as they mm. grow. So you're actually embedded in life. And as you are, you do not develop this sense that, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not perfect enough. Your role models aren't perfect. Mm. Your role models aren't static. They're not an idea of some perfection. We don't realize the extent to which that connection to life versus a connection to abstract images and concepts, that's what's shaping this whole gender thing, mm. that's what's shaping racism, it's what's shaping the male-female divide. And I, you know, I, um, again, you see why, as we start, start okay, I'm not going to be listening so much to the media, which a lot of people are turning away from anyway, But unfortunately, a lot of people are turning away from the mainstream media are still locked into the social media. And the social media are doing what the media did before, which was to polarize Mm. gender roles, for instance. Polarize racial extremes, romanticize white, you know, blonde, blue-eyed people. Now the mainstream is happy to romanticize people of color. But what they're not romanticizing is people who live closer to the land, mm. people who have chosen a path different from the consumer culture. Mm. The consumer culture, the urban lifestyle, wealth, power, that's being romanticized still. And fame. Mm. When you decide, even turning away from the social media and the mainstream media, to real life culture, and you start interacting even with more small-scale local theater, small-scale local music, Mm. small-scale local everything, even a yoga gathering that's not part of some huge chain from Mm. the big city. You start turning towards a more human-scale, independent, face-to-face. That's where you recover your humanity. That's where you recover your joy. That's where you recover really what it is to be human. Now, part of that connection to life is also the connection to nature. But I feel now there's the connection to nature is being overemphasized at the expense of understanding 
the need to connect to other human beings. Mm. It's also the connection to nature is being used in a way that still carries a false message that if we just feel connected to the stream and the mountain, then we won't be damaging nature so much. But mm. we're not looking at what's actually damaging nature. Mm. It's a corporate consumer culture. It's our government, left, right and center, supporting a corporate economy that's destroying us, us and the earth. So, um, yeah, <laughs> a lot more to say, but, but I think it's, it's really important to have clarity about these issues. And I think that, well, not just I think, I see that when people connect to each other at the local face-to-face -face level, there can be these huge benefits quite quickly. Even raising children together, you see, oh, so much oh, of the, the concept of one child, there's so much division even in the family units, just like, yeah. let's say you're in a family and you do have a mother and a father still, yeah. and you, this is your role model, and yeah. there's no significant others to, yeah. to show exactly. you different, exactly. different types of identity, exactly. the complexity, like you exactly. said, of, for me, one of my major major points to realize that how much there is how much characters we have inside how many colors we're not one thing we're yeah. so many things yeah. and that's coming back to what yeah. you said yeah and also i want to point out that the nuclear family which is a complete product of this economy where people were Absolutely. pushed away from human scale more interdependent structures whether business or government and they were pushed into bigger and bigger cities and it started in the West back in the 1700s or even a bit earlier with enclosures. And then, um, so it's been imposed on us from the beginning by a global trading elite. But what we really need to see is that when we live in a nuclear family, we've created a bipolar structure, mm. you know, man and woman who, cannot really almost ever mm. need each other to exactly the same extent. No. So you have then maybe man or woman getting busy with other things and the other person wants more attention. So then you've created this structure that is almost impossible to stay stable. Now, when you have in the nuclear family then a few children as well, the intensity of the need is so great because as human beings, we need human contact. We need to belong. This is particularly clear for the child that comes into this world needing basically constant care. So when you're in the nuclear family, you're putting the demand, usually on the mother, to be providing what, in an evolutionary terms, 10 people, 15 people, the provided tribe. that amount of care. Mm. 10 or 15 and it wasn't the whole tribe it was in the case of Ladakh it was mm. an extended family living in a big house spacious house and you know 10 to 12 people and so that meant every mother had you know let's say minimum of five living caretakers for every child minimum mm. now that creates a completely different environment for the child and also means that if the husband goes away for several weeks it's not such a big deal for the mm. wife. She also has the aunts and the uncles and the brothers. And because the extended family is extended, 
the boundary between family and community is not so rigid. Mm. Whereas in the nuclear family, what's happened is it's been part of this rupturing of our connections to others and to nature. And we've been driven into this urban existence, isolated from others, made to feel insecure. And then we have a situation where it's only behind the four walls of the nuclear family that we feel we're actually known. Mm. And we know that we're not perfect. We know that we argue. We know that we can get upset. We know that we... But outside, we have to look perfect. We portray a perfect Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we believe that that's the only way we're going to be loved. Mm. And so this... Now, I also want to say that I have, uh, you know, a friend or... Well, not a friend, but someone I know who started a whole sort of eco-village based on the idea that we need to break down the nuclear family. And the way to do that is through polyamory, mm. that we have multiple sexual relationships and I would argue that that's a male approach I would say that my <laughs> approach as a woman is that in this situation where we are quite isolated and damaged from our nuclear families all of us with lots of trauma and neurosis and so on if we go that way it's very hard on women on old people and children so my message is don't start with polyamory. Start by building stronger community. Mm. And you can do that by, you know, even putting up a little flag, maybe showing one of our films, like Ancient Futures or Economics of Happiness, mm. see if people are interested, and then create a bit of a group where you together start sharing more of the childcare. Ideally, you would even learn the benefit of coming and sitting in circle mm. and sharing your vulnerabilities so that you start actually healing these rigid divides and you realize that you can actually be loved being imperfect. Mm. You can have problems and neuroses and so on and you still love. So this circle building is fundamental to the localization movement that we promote. And it's also been proven in therapies like the 12-step Alcoholics Anonymous and so on programs for addiction, alcoholism, drugs, sex addiction. And so it's been proven. And I, it's, <laughs> I just want to stress, it's been proven that people can get over the most horrendous addictions by coming into circle with others mm. where they share the journey of the chain. Now... When it comes to a happier life, when it comes to more community building, starting changes for a local economy, if we do that like that, imagine how much more quickly we can proceed and succeed. Absolutely. It sounds in uh, many things. Once, I have personally also been in individual therapy and yeah. in, as I was growing up, as a yeah. teen, I was a teenager, I had lots of anxiety and depression issues and I've been to psychologist but and you know overcoming it through my own personal journey with yoga and different healing technique I see now that there's nothing more powerful than sitting in a circle yeah. with women specifically but also with everyone if it's men and children again doesn't yeah. matter really doesn't matter the gender even though there is something very special specifically with women yeah 
and it's something that I really encourage everyone yeah. to, to mm. build and something that I also want mm. to do more of and mm. I see how much it's connect and coming back to your point about that it sounds like again this this society is kind of feeding this consumerism oh. of because the more you're isolated the yeah. more you're depressed the more you buy the more yeah. you think you can get things outside of yourself yeah. to complete it but yeah. the more you return to community and yeah. to nature yeah and remember you know when you say outside of yourself you see this is also you need to be clear about this because we've been told don't look outside yourself just look inside mm -hmm. turning towards community towards nature is also turning Turn. outside mm -hmm. but it's recognizing that evolutionary patterning we evolved for 5,000 years is recorded in community intergenerational community never isolated behind four walls in a nuclear situation, never isolated from the animals, the water, the plants, everything we depend on. Mm. So that reconnection is fundamental. And, it, and the story of you're perfectly fine on your own, you don't need anybody, that story has been drummed into us. And so that's a strength and so that's something good. And that's part of a patriarchal culture. Mm where the men have been dehumanized more than women mm. into very generally um, beings who are not very social. And they have tended to want their little woman at their side, mm. and that's all they need. Yeah. And I even live with that with my husband. You know, it's really, really hard. Maybe we don't talk enough now. There's people talking more about men's circles as well, because yeah. of how important it is yeah. actually... If women have been through the most you know, horrific thing, men yeah. also yeah. could not uh, show their emotion, yeah. could not really yeah. uh, you know, be, again, like you said, dehumanized. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it's all part of the masculinization of our entire culture. The, mm. the, you know, the whole enterprise started by men, big traders, who were misogynists, who were anti-nature, who were, who were also very, you know, were profoundly racist, you know, literally hunting mm. Aboriginal people and so on. So that system was started with very, very destructive values that were very explicit. But again, I want to remind people that it's so wonderful to recognize that even though we've been imprisoned in that system and even though the whole world is still continuing to go along with being pushed in that direction, the cultural turning has been in exactly the opposite direction. More and more interest in nature, more and more respect for indigenous culture, for the feminine, for women. So there's been this huge cultural turning. Yes. The problem is that it gets co-opted by the system. The same system. And the system is still taking us in the wrong direction. Mm. But at the, again, I want to say systemic change happens when we start at the local level building those deeper connected so it's starting small for those who hear yeah, all that and get very yeah, inspired but yeah. still get overwhelmed sometime yeah, yeah absolutely starting small and staying small staying the key is to stay small but to help a proliferation mm. so even now i run a women's circle and some people think oh it should be open but it can't be because it needs to be of a certain scale mm. and what i want to encourage is that more of these circles happen you know so that more and more people realize that um, the human scale that's again 
was fundamental in shaping happier, healthier mm. people and more sustainable ways of living. Mm. Wow. That's very, very inspiring. And I would love to just keep on talking to you and hearing more and more. But just to, to wrap it up and to come to a finish, yeah, if there's anything more that you would love to just give, a, give your... Well, I think I would like people to read my book, Ancient Futures, where I write about life in Ladakh, where you can learn more about some of the characteristics that were so, yeah, just so much part of people being happier and healthier. And I maybe want to say to that too, that I had to live in the culture to really learn some of these things. It took me a long time to really open my eyes because the inner wealth that I'm talking about is not something that you see so easily from the outside, although you would. I mean, almost anyone who would come to Ladakh in those days would realize from just all the smiles and the laughter and so on, how happy people were. But so Ancient Futures, that's a book that, along with a film we made, which is also available on YouTube, uh, between them they were translated into 45 languages roughly. And wow. there was so much interest around the world from indigenous cultures, but also from people who had lived with more traditional cultures. And then The Economics of Happiness is a film that we've done that can be very helpful for opening people's eyes. And a more recent book I have is Local is Our Future. Mm -hmm. And then, as I think I mentioned at the beginning, World Localization Day, horrible long name, but <laughs> do look that up um, at localfutures.org, you know, www localfutures.org Hearing you sp speak, I, I just feel like, you know, we are all so conditioned in a way to, to, to for sometimes forget even what is, what is our true essence in, in this life. We're, we're always after something, trying to, in a way, be, it's, it sounds almost ridiculous, but famous or like fame or to Absolutely. get, or to gain a, uh, uh, to be, to know that we are important, to yes, matter. Yes. And we forget that the smallest yeah. action we take is the one that really defines us. Okay? Helping our, my grandma or just spending time with, yeah. or just being together, singing, dancing. Yeah. I, I, but you know, this need to be famous, mm. that's programmed into children now because, again, we're subjected to, to globalized up. media, mm. whether on the internet or in mainstream media. So it's quite a natural thing because what's happened is that the death of relationships in the local community and local economy means that the global becomes more and more prominent and more important. Mm. And so until you start working with others to really start recreating more of a group endeavor at the local level, the individual will be looking to become famous, will be looking to become important. It's like you don't exist. Yeah. It's like you don't exist if you don't do that. But part of the journey of healing is, like I say, even to just have a circle of friends that you start discussing this with and you start shaping a different discourse and looking at different films and different 
um, information to realize how important it is to rebuild the fabric of human scale, face-to-face, living community fabric. Now that doesn't become some kind of isolated thing by itself. Those local communities are feeling very much um, expanded. You actually feel bigger. You feel stronger and bigger and more joyous. So you're not afraid of the other. It's not about closing up off some wall and living in isolation. And also I want to say the local communities that we need are not like most local communities that you find in the mainstream world where you know rural small communities, small towns for hundreds of years have been marginalized, have been left behind, mm. have been made to feel stupid, have been impoverished. They tend not to be very happy places. Yeah, and they tend right. often to be people who are quite prejudiced because they've been made to feel insecure. Mm. What you have to look for is the ancient local, like in ancient futures, which mm. is not so easy to find now. Mm. But for me, what gives me so much joy is seeing the new local, mm. whether in the city or whether in small towns like Portland or Byron Bay or you know, Santa Cruz or Boulder, Colorado in America, all over the world, in Japan and Korea, as well, you'll find these centers where people have moved because they want community and they want connection with nature. So that reconnection, mm. new local, that's where you get a lot of inspiration. And what's very important that you said is that a lot of people are afraid. They think that if they're going to belong to a community, they're, yeah. lo- they're going to lose their uh, individuality. Yes, yes. Which is, again, it's the like opposite. It's the opposite, opposite of that. Opposite. I mean, so many, we've seen that all that extreme and almost negative example of, yeah. you know, this community becoming a cult or people projecting yes. and calling them cult. Yes. So it's been so misleading yeah. and almost yeah. uh, being caused to fear from, don't turn on into that. Yeah. Don't and just to yeah. to remind us that we can actually thrive as still remaining our yeah. individuality yeah. in a group yeah. in a community. But you know, also often many of those groups were led by a guru. But again, the, and I think this is again tragic because I think the um, the spiritual dimension is very important. But for me, the ancient futures the spiritual um, fabric was really a question of feeling at one with life, feeling Mm -hmm. connected to nature. It was a more embodied, animistic, feminine Mm -hmm. spirituality. And it wasn't based on one male or female guru. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were people who played a role as shamans or even, you know, in Tibet, the Rinpoches played an important role. But actually... What I saw in Ladakh with you know, his great love for the Dalai Lama, the real health and joy came from how they lived every day, how mm-hmm. they related to each other, how they related to the animals, mm-hmm. and, that, and how old and young, as I said before, were connected. So you didn't have to live in fear of aging. You didn't have to live in fear of change, you know, mm-hmm. all those things. So much of this, of the fear is leading us in our life and just to remember our truest essence to come back into oneness with yeah. each other, nature. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for this time. It's very, very inspiring. And, and yeah, I really encourage everyone to, to follow and find Elena's books and work and the, the movie. And yes, just be just very, very inspiring. Maybe I should also mention, yes. I'm pretty bad at this, but some people are just helping now to set up a website of mine, you know, mm. so Helen and Norberg Hodge. There are whole ideas that to try to get the message out more widely. And so we have both local futures and mine, but I hope people will look at both. Definitely, please. And uh, I know I will keep on um, attending whatever you do and oh. following. Thank, Thank you. you so much for your time. This is very, I couldn't appreciate it more. Well. Thank you. It's wonderful that you're also doing this work, both, you know, really clear about the connection to body, spirit, and to the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. As it were, really what we're talking about is political and economic change. Yes. And we need to see the continuum, you know, and be willing to look at all those dimensions. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for, for listening, and stay tuned. Bye.